0: Buried, Not Forgotten, is a true crime podcast that is for mature audiences. We will discuss topics that some people might find upsetting, including mental illness, violence, drug use, and murder. Interview subjects' opinions are their own and should not be taken as fact. It is 1975, and 18-year-old Walter Smith has just been found murdered and buried in a cave. That week, Peter Hauer is cooperative with investigators until he disappears, and a strange note is found on his typewriter. The police view it as a suicide note and confession to Walter's murder, but things are not as simple as they first appear. West by God. Almost heaven. God's country.
1: If you've never been to West Virginia, or if you don't live there, then forget what you heard. This is a real-life Appalachian murder mystery.
0: Episode 2, Reason to be Scared
1: So, just to remind you, Peter Hower moved to Pocahontas County, West Virginia in 1971. He bought a little farm for $4,500, and his place served as kind of a flop house for his caver friends who were from all over the country. And in episode one, we talked about how years later, sometime in 1974, someone started attacking Peter Howard's animals, his livestock. And just a heads up, the next few minutes are pretty unpleasant. Lori was a friend and neighbor of Peter Howard's. She and her husband helped Peter while the attacks were going on. She said she was troubled by the bloodshed, but did what she could to help in the aftermath.
2: The other thing that I don't know if, if this is actually figured in anywhere, some of Pete's animals were being killed or tortured in some way. I mean, him coming to the house because nobody had phones, or we didn't certainly have a phone, and, you know, coming to the house and was like, God, you've got to come and help me, you know, and, and Michael and I going down there and, and animals just being butchered. There was one little Angora goat. That I guess had like hid in the corner or something and hadn't been harmed. I mean, cause some of the animals weren't dead and Michael like ended up having to put them down. But this one little Angora goat had not been harmed and, you know, I mean, it was obvious she was just terrified for, for weeks thereafter. We took her home with us and cause we had goats and so we, you know, just got her away from that scene. And, and uh, you know, for weeks, I mean, she just she just shake and tremble and, you know, at the least little thing. She was just absolutely terrified.
1: From what we can tell, there were four separate incidents involving Peter Howard's animals. The first attack, one of his goat's ears were cut off, and things just escalated from there.
2: Like I said, it seemed to me that the thing with the animals was happening on a fairly regular basis on or around the full moon now it might have been simply that that was when it was easier to sneak down through the woods or it might have been that there was like i said because of the symbols that were found inside the cave that there might have been some other influence
1: there we've heard about these symbols from other people we interviewed and we will get into that a little down the road another friend of peter's lawrence was also a witness to the attacks. He had known Pete even from Pennsylvania caving trips in the 60s, and he also settled in Pocahontas County around the same time as
3: Pete. He was, of course, very enamored of West Virginia, as we all were, and we moved here about the same time. So I saw quite a bit of him. And uh, the part where we sort of came in closer contact was when he began to have trouble with uh, the locals. Because Pete was—he uh, was very judgmental about uh, things like uh, killing snakes and that sort of thing—and a number of the locals didn't like him. And uh, eventually, uh, somehow, some—he he had a horse and several goats. <coughs> somehow, they got uh, injured for on purpose. Uh, they, they were attacked by whom? There are various theories, of course. One being that Pete himself was dissociated, if you know that word. He did things that he didn't remember.
1: A lot of people have speculated about the role mental illness may have played in this case. We felt it was important enough that we tracked down a mental health professional that had been working in the area back then. We'll get into that in a later episode.
3: Uh, The contact I had with him having to do with his animals was, uh, I got a... I don't know why he called me. Uh, I don't remember the the exact circumstances, but a couple of his goats were sliced up, and uh, he wanted to know whether I could sew up his goat. And uh, I had never sewn up any kind of wound before in my life, but I just figured, uh, you know, sewing is sewing. And uh, I had uh, some uh, carpet needles you know, the large curved needles, I figured they were just perfectly adapted to sewing animals. So I went down and sewed up his goat. It was just one goat at the time, but I think another goat got hurt too, but I'm not sure of that. And he told me that his horse, someone had jammed a stick down his horse's throat, and I think the horse eventually did die.
1: On December 28th, 1974, Pete returned home from a long day of cave exploration and found his horse, April, killed.
3: And he he was, he he was, uh, well, upset would be a a mild term. I mean, he was, he related that he was having trouble with his neighbor.
1: You've already heard from some of Peter Howard's former neighbors. He had grown close to all the families that lived nearby, except for one. This family, we're going to call them the Browns to protect their privacy, lived up above Peter Howe'r over a hill. They were tenant farmers to a man named Boyd Thompson, now deceased, who owned the property and was building a new brick house on the hill above the Salt Peter Cave.
3: Pete, I mean, he, he was in an a upset state of mind for quite a while there uh, when his animals were being attacked and he Boyd and Boyd Thompson were kind of feuding and, According to Boy Thompson, had threatened
1: him. Remember, in episode one, when Beth mentioned Walter's bike went missing and it might be in a nearby chimney, this is that same neighbor, Chuck, Peter's caving buddy from episode one.
0: Remembers the neighbor. You were at um, Pete's house when some of the animal attacks were going on, and maybe did a little bit of searching after one of them.
4: Yeah, guilty is charged.
0: Can do, do? You mind just like telling us about that? What happened?
4: It at the asking price the adjacent uh, landowner was very upset because he felt that he should have been able to buy it at less than the asking price and there was ill feelings um that Peter had bought the house and he was living on the house and this went for years, a couple of years at least um He definitely wanted that place.
1: Chuck was in the Pocahontas County area a lot back then.
4: Well, I was living in Morgantown at the time, but I was down there about every weekend in the area doing research on caves. Uh, Peter, at the time, when uh, butchering started, uh, was very psychologically damaged by the people that were threatening him that were coming down and killing his uh his animal and so peter was escaping periodically up to my place in morgantown and he would spend several days there he'd have some of his other friends that lived in the area take care of the animal he's basically the only According to what he told me, he says the only time he could get a good night's sleep was at my place. There was quite a few people would stop in and visit with Pete.
1: Chuck spent time in the army and considers himself a capable woodsman. next day. Two sons in the Brown family who had intellectual and speech limitations. It's not for us to speculate about this, but we've heard them called lots of derogatory names. Dimwits, maybe being the most mild. So Peter and his friends were fairly certain who was responsible for the animal attacks. And because Pete had always kept a meticulous log of all his caving trips, we can verify the date April, his horse, was killed and it was the night of the full moon. Peter wrote in a letter to a friend,
5: Finally caught the madman who was terrorizing me. He is in jail, awaiting trial or commitment. 21 years old, with the mind of a child, part of a family of ruffians who seem like characters out of deliverance. I'm out of
4: money and racked nerves, but I think the worst is over now. Been keeping busy
5: with cave history work to get over all the guns, violence, and awful things that happened.
1: At this point, we need to draw the line between rumor and verifiable information. The rumor, which we have heard from many sources within the community, is that one of the Browns' sons confessed to the animal attacks. We heard that he served a six month sentence in the state psychiatric hospital. And we've heard that sentence would have been complete in early June, 1975, just before the deaths of Walter Smith and Peter Hauer. Although we have heard a nearly identical story from numerous people, all of these records are confidential because they fall under what West Virginia refers to as a mental hygiene proceeding. If you've ever heard of Weston State Hospital, formerly the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, That would have been where the sentence was served. Fuck it. I'll play something different. You're listening to Buried Not Forgotten, a Veritas Underground Media Production.
0: Another local caver, Ed, remembers that time period really well. He was called in to help search early in the case, and he was one of the handful of volunteers that found Walter Smith's body that first week.
5: Well this guy called Fred one night about 7:30 and said that there was a caver lost. And so Jerry called me. So Fred Jerry and Debbie and I went up to the- Group Mountain went to the ranger's house and he said it was down at Lobelia Cave. And we all knew the cave very well, knew Pete Howard, the
0: guy that owned it. Ed says when they arrived at Peter Howard's farm, the state police were already on scene and they'd found the typewriter note in the house. It said Walter's body was in the cave just up the hill. So the state trooper asked us
5: if we ever went in caves, we said, yeah. And uh, he said, would you mind going in the cave and looking and seeing you, what you could find? Well, that was a little bit tense because you didn't know if there was a guy with a gun in there or what was going on. So Jerry, Debbie, and I went in the cave and the first room is a long, not it's walking height, but it's not real high, but it's about 30 feet long, maybe a little less. So Debbie took one side, I took the other side, Jerry took the middle, and we were slowly moving up through there, you know, keeping an eye out for rocks to get
0: behind if somebody starts shooting or whatever. Ed explained to us, in caves, sometimes there's a substance called magnesium dioxide. It comes out of the atmosphere and slowly coats the rocks and turns them black. And it's like soot almost.
5: And so I'm walking up through there, and I'll see pile of rocks there that were disturbed. the magnesium dioxide side was down and not up and uh, so I walked over and looked at it and got down and moved a few rocks and uncovered a foot and so I called Jerry Debbie over and they came running over and We, I think we Thought that he might still be alive, you know, and type deal. So we started uncovering a little bit more. And uh, Jerry was a paramedic and I was an EMT. And we decided that
0: it was definitely dead. Ed says they went back outside and told the state troopers they'd found a body. So then they brought more people in. And the
5: ambulance service come in, and everybody went in the cave. And it was you know, easy enough to get into that even big fat troopers, and you know, they could go up in there. And uh, uncovered him completely and put him on a, a Stokes
0: litter or something. They took him out and put him in the ambulance, and he was gone. The teams thought they would find Peter dead or alive in a nearby cave, as the note indicated.
5: So then we uh, were standing around and in the note it said that, uh, I don't remember the exact wording, but that one body would be found in the cave and then Peter's body would be found in another cave. So there were two or three caves real close there and most of them were vertical you had to take a rope and go down in them so we you know, shamed each other and all this to so finally Fred went down the most likely cave and there was nothing there and then we went down in some others and then we spent a week in there searching all the other caves in the vicinity
0: but this time there was a whole crowd of people Ed remembers the men Walter Smith's father brought down with him. I mean,
5: they were running all over the place and, you know, they were demanding questions and answers from locals and again, you know, this was the pot-growing hippies that came down, you know, to buy cheap land, live by themselves,
4: not be bothered and
5: they had these machines and they weren't common back then. You know, nowadays, everybody's got a four-by-four, side-by-side, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but they would go roaring up the road, six or seven of them. And,
0: you know, the cops just shake their heads. After weeks with no new evidence, the search and rescue teams called off the operation. Like most of the folks we talked to, Ed says he remained skeptical about the outcome of the case.
5: I knew Pete. we were not best friends, but we were certainly caving acquaintances. Pete was a respected historian and uh, conservationist and all of that back in those days. and uh, I had gone in to a couple of caves with him and had been at, you know, parties, not, not this one, but one similar uh, with him, and, and you know, he was, he was, I, I did not expect that, you know, and I still don't, you know, I don't, I don't think Pete did that, I think it was somebody else, you know, and there was so much, I mean, was the letter accurate or was the letter somehow forced to be written? There's nothing to work off of. You know, you got a body, you got a letter. Where's the bicycle? Never found. They're getting conflicting stories from everybody. And, you know, you had witches down there that was, you know, these they thought they were witches. I mean, you know, they had uh,
0: you know, herbs and pots and, you know, crazy, crazy dead people. Chuck was also there during the search for Peter Hauer, which continued for weeks after Walter Smith's body was discovered.
4: We brought a bunch of cavers in and, you know, for several days we searched caves all over it, all the way from uh, Stadigrews, which is up on Jay Cox Road. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was, you know, that's a mile or more cave that would be readily available, so 20 some 20-some miles of cave all total. And we didn't you know, go into each and every one for the full length, but we went in and, and looked for any recent occupancy. We checked almost all the drops because we figured that, you know, if he was going to kill himself in a cave, he might just jump into a pit. And then checked some of the ones that were difficult to get into to see if the entrance had been disturbed. There, there was some scary shit down there. You know, I, I like I said, we slept at the house. A lot of the cavers, maybe four or five of us, slept at the house. They did not have the crime scene secured well, and people were going in and out of the house. We had some strange people showing up. I interviewed a. A woman who thought she was a paranormal, that Peter was being held in a barn,
0: this was days after he disappeared. We've already talked about a few different ways this could have gone, and now we need to bring up a whole other angle in this case. Chuck remembers one of the area residents. We're going to call him Brian to protect his privacy. He left the area the same week Walter's body was recovered. We've learned from the police report that Peter and Walter went to Brian's house the night that Walter disappeared. Brian's house was searched, and the police report describes bullet holes and blood-stained fabric. A pond behind the house was drained to search for evidence. According to the police report, Brian moved out of the state the day after Walter's remains were discovered and had his common-law wife return to West Virginia for his things. I don't know that he was an official suspect, but, you know, he had had leapt suddenly.
4: Right. And he may not have been a suspect, but for the Cavers, we were suspect of what went on and that he would know.
0: Chuck was a first-hand witness to what the police report describes.
4: We never saw the blood. None of the Cavers saw the blood. Uh, But bullet holes, we definitely saw that it was really suspicious that this kid had been killed with a firearm, and that there
0: were all of a sudden bullet holes inside the house. You know, you don't just get drunk, smoke dope, and shoot holes in your wall. Ed, who we spoke to earlier, was the first person to enter the house. When Ed is talking about Pappy, he's talking about one of the state troopers, Pappy Dyer. So
5: we went up to this
0: old, it was an old two-story farmhouse. <laughs>
5: Beat on the door and there was obviously nobody there. There was no vehicles, nothing. Looked in the windows and so happy, of course, was restrained by the legal. You know, he couldn't just break into a house, but I didn't have much
3: mm-hmm.
5: legal restraints. So I went around back and kicked the back door in and went through the house and opened the front door and said, come on in. and uh so there was there was a stain on the couch it was that we thought was bloodstains and they checked it and it wasn't how big pretty big it was a pretty big stain and, uh, so they they cut, i think they cut a piece of fabric off or something and, uh, but we went upstairs and there was a hallway and uh, down at the end of the hallway there was a room that had a new oak I mean, that thing was like what you'd find, in, you know, almost a bank. I mean, it was solid as a rock. They put two layers of oak boards and with a heavy-duty padlock on it, and uh, padlock from the outside.
0: You know. Ed crawled out onto the roof and found the window leading to the padlock bedroom.
5: There was a mattress in the center of the floor that was piled high with old blankets. Like, you know, I mean these are grody blankets, <laughs> you know? And there was black hairs scattered all around. And, you know, I said, Oh shit, you know, there's gonna be something dead and gross and bad under these blankets. So I was kind of circling around, you know, looking to see if I see a finger or something sticking out. Jesus. Good God. <laughs> And I happened to glance up and there was a mirror on the wall. And I saw myself in the mirror and, you know, scared the daylights out of myself when I saw my own reflection. And when I realized it was my own reflection, heartbeats went down to about one thirty. I was looking around and there was hundreds of bullet holes in all the walls.
0: Ed remembers even the mirror had been shot.
5: So as soon as I saw, the, saw that, I went through that window, had a dead run, ran along the ledge, got back in. I told Pappy, I said, you need to go in there. And I hadn't looked under the blankets, so.
0: Yeah, don't touch. Yeah, I
5: wouldn't, I didn't want to see. And uh, so then got a bunch of people up there. They broke the lock off and went in. There wasn't nothing on the blankets and they dug bullets out of the wall. But again, you know, is this connected with Peter who knows yeah uh, like someone was sleeping up there or yeah they had somebody they were locking in the room padlock
0: from the outside with an extremely heavy door
5: yeah Yeah. in the
0: same house where the pond was drained
5: yes so that's that was what you know so we were on the hot lead then you know
0: So let's recap what we learned in episode two.
1: Keep in mind, according to the local rumors, one of the sons in the Brown family confessed to abusing Peter Howard's animals. The six-month sentence he served would have been completed around the time of Walter's disappearance. One theory that needs mentioning is that maybe Peter shot Walter by accident, thinking he was an intruder there to harm his animals. One of the area residents left shortly after Walter went missing. When his former house was later searched, small caliber bullet holes were found throughout the house, and a piece of blood-stained fabric was retained by police
0: for testing. We'd like to thank everyone you heard from in Episode 2. Laurie, Lawrence, ed and chuck and also again as peter hauer our friend luke
1: the music in episode two is our friend caleb playing a claw hammer banjo the songs are called shelvin rock and sandy boys caleb and his wife ashley deserve a special thanks they've been friends from way before this podcast and whether we're playing tunes together or eating thanksgiving dinner they've always had an extra place at the table. Without their help and from their families over the years, you probably wouldn't be hearing this. So stay tuned for episode three next week, and let's just let Caleb play us out.